Xi Jinping's got some trust issues. Over the past few months, he's run through a number of PLA generals that he appointed less than 12 months ago uh, to discuss what is going on with the People's Liberation Army. Uh, we have on Joel Wuthno, Senior Research Fellow at the National Defense University. Joel, welcome to China Talk. Co-hosting uh, today, we have editor Nicholas Welch. So, um, Joel, uh, two cents overview. What has happened with these purges of late? So there's been a lot of purges inside China, even beyond the PLA. Uh, we had Qinggang disappear. We've had a whole bunch of people from the defense industry up and disappear. Um, in the PLA, we've had a number of senior generals um, missing in action right now, frankly, Jordan. We don't know where they are. There's a lot of rumors circulating about them, uh, including the defense minister, including uh, the former commander of the rocket force. Lots of rumors uh, circulating about what might be going on. Nothing confirmed. Um, but it's not a good look for Xi Jinping. And the fact that you have so many people missing all at once, it certainly means that he's got a lack of trust, lack of confidence uh, in some of his senior leadership right now. So, so Joel, from the from the sort of like PLA watcher community, I had one friend reach out to me who said he was like kind of bummed with all this. Like he's been following Li Shangfu for a decade and all of a sudden like he's gone. Are you guys like excited, sort of like sad to see your friends, you know, leave the stage? Like what's the like emotional um, response um, when you see, you know, a new a new round of crackdowns? Yeah, I'd say for me, the emotion is more surprise coupled with curiosity. Um, it's really a it's almost a shocking state of affairs, frankly. And the reason is this. It's because, you know, Xi Jinping, you know, for us PLA watchers, I think we all mostly assume that he's really in charge of the machine over there, that he put his people into place, that his political rivals were gone a decade ago. And so the fact that you keep seeing this happen, um, it's, it's really surprising to wake up and the defense minister, who is someone who is probably pretty close to Xi, he's on the Central Military Commission, the fact that he's just gone um, at this point in time under Xi Jinping, uh, this is really surprising and maybe even a little bit worrisome if you think about the implications of this for China. I think we I think we should start by sort of unpacking the idea that she like has controlled or like put his stamp on the PLA. And to and to do and to do that, we probably need to start with a little bit of institutional history. So what was the bargain that Deng gave the PLA coming into the 1980s? Uh, so you go back to the 1980s, you know, where the PLA was, was, you know, they were all around, they were governing society, they were stacked in the Politburo, they were part of, very important part of the leadership, they had a huge amount of power. And Deng Xiaoping said, no, we're going to focus on reforming the economy, we want technocrats, we want the military to be um, put in their place, to be essentially put back in their barracks. Um, he said, we want you to modernize, but we're not going to give you that much money to do it. Um, and so it looked like not a great bargain for the PLA. You have to give up a lot of a lot of your authority, your status and not get a lot of money. And so Dunk said, well, you know, go back to your barracks, but you decide what you're going to do. We're not going to look in your affairs. We're not going to, you know, get too involved in your business. Um, so he gave them a huge amount of autonomy. Um, and this was acceptable. It was palatable for the PLA, but it also created a situation where they could become very uh, corrupt and very inward looking, secretive and very poorly um, supervised um, by the Politburo, 
by the senior civilian leadership of the party. Um, and so this is really where the origin of a lot of the problems that we're seeing today come into place. It's that you don't have a Western-style civil-military relations where you have a lot of civilian oversight, right? So political appointees, courts, judges, media, what have you. There's really none of that in China. And so that's kind of the situation that they found themselves in. Corrupt, secretive, not rebellious, right? They weren't doing military coups against, you know, the leaders, as you saw in 1991 with the Soviet Union. Um, but they weren't really fully professional and they weren't really fully um, clean, if you will. And so the seed for what's going on today was planted, I would say, about 40 years ago um, in the 80s with Deng Xiaoping. The reason the PLA was so ingrained in society was, was because Mao decided that they were the only way to get out of the Cultural Revolution, right? So it was basically like that or complete chaos. And then he ended up deciding to pull the, um, uh, the sort of PLA card towards the, what was it, like 1967, 1968. Um, so then you have this like very awkward situation where, um, you know, if you're not about to fight a war anytime soon and everyone else is getting rich around you, but like, you know, the two sort of like dominant strategies, if you want to rise up and be successful in the PLA are to either like do really weird things like import luxury cars, run hotels, um, or just graft um, on the sort of procurement that, uh, you know, you, you've been able to get uh, allocated to your um, to your budget and not necessarily do what um, maybe the premier wants, which is to get you in tip top shape to potentially, you know, deter uh, deter adversaries and maybe even fight an aggressive war. Um, so Jiang and who sort of what did they want to do and how did they struggle to execute on their vision of what the PLA should be up to in the 90s and 2000s? Right. So Johnson Min and Hu Jintao both basically wanted to get the PLA out of business. Uh, so you know, the PLA was running all sorts of business empires, and this was a way to make to, to make ends meet. Um, and part of the way they tried to do this was by just giving the PLA larger budgets. Uh, and so in the 90s, early 2000s, you did see, you know, you saw double digit budget increases. Um, and then you also saw new rules and regulations. And so, you know, some of those operations, right, the casinos and the luxury car stuff, a lot of that stuff was actually shut down. But it didn't really change, you know, the the basics, um, you know, the fact that you weren't really that well governed, supervised, et cetera. Just to, to give folks a sense of just how broken the system was, like there was to to rise up in the ranks, like there was not a way to do so without being corrupt, um, because at a certain point, you know, you ended up having to like buy your ranks. Um, and then, you know, in order to because like, you know, all of these positions, they like had dollar amounts attached. So if you were, you know, if you just had had like inputs coming into whatever barracks you were running that were more fungible, like, you know, uh, food or, or gas or whatever, um, you know, you were expected to sort of sell some of that off and then pay your subordinates and pay your superiors and then, you know, take some of yourself for your own. And it was, you know, there ended up being a sort of market price for that. And then, you know, then you get into the really awkward thing. Um, there's been some reporting about this where like, Okay, say you want to get promoted and like you don't have a rich uncle that you can find um, in China to bankroll you. Like who else might be interested in um, uh, in supporting, uh, you know, folks getting uh, promoted in the PLA system, but foreign uh, intelligence agencies. So you end up with this very vicious cycle of the people who are getting promoted um, actually being the ones who are on the take from uh, uh, from adversaries. So 
So this is the sort of dynamic that she ends up um, uh, facing uh, as he as he comes to power in 2011 and 2012. Um, any any sort of other color on, um, uh, you know, just just how ugly it ended up getting in the 90s and 2000s you want to share, Joel? And it was really prolific. You had schemes inside the general political department. I mean, so this is like your HR system. It's kind of like you want to become a general and there is like a Renan B amount that's attached to it. And so the idea is in 2012, when she comes in, you know, everybody who's there in one way or another is somehow complicit in this system. And so his dilemma is saying, I need to fix it, but I can't just get rid of everybody. Um, so how am I going to do this? And so the top people on his list are the guys who are not only corrupt, but that are also associated with his political rivals. And so he's kind of doing double business here. He's getting, you know, Xu Taiho and Guo Xiang and, you know, Fang Feng Huan. But people who are sort of Zhang Zemin people, um, he's focusing on them first. But then the people that are left, they're all still corrupt, too, including some of the disappeared guys of late. So so the, the hope was that you could sort of scare people straight while at the same time, hopefully changing the institutional incentives such that everyone who, you know, may have had a dirty past ends up seeing the light of, uh, you know, focusing on military national rejuvenation as opposed to making sure that, you know, their grandkids can have um, a, a beach house in Malibu or what have you. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this isn't to like overstate or overplay the problem that these guys are just sitting around, you know, doing corrupt schemes. I mean, you know, some of these guys, you could probably argue are competent officers. Um, so, you know, yes, they are taking money on the side or they're complicit in it, um, you know, but some of them are actually, you know, worth their salt as military officers as well. And so Xi Jinping is saying, like, let's take that group of people who are at least competent and let's not just get out everybody because you can't do that and hope to have a functioning military um, at the end of the day. So she, uh, you know, uh, starts off with a bang, uh, throws a lot of folks out, uh, throws a lot of very senior folks out and then tries to build in some sort of institutional reform so that um, this doesn't happen again. Well, at the same time, um, having a very sort of ambitious vision for, um, you know, what he hopes uh, the PLA to achieve. So, um, Joel, walk us through those two, uh, those two things, the sort of sets of reforms as well as the lodestar for um, his hope for the PLA. So there's a lot of different pieces of the reforms, some of which are about making the PLA a better warfighting organization, others of which are about making the PLA better managed. And so I'll just focus on the latter. Yeah, I mean, what he's trying to do is to rearrange the system so that the people who are the supervisors, right, they're the internal control people, they're a little bit disentangled from each other, okay? So the general political department previously, they had all the power. They were doing all the supervision. So you're corrupt, you go up through that level to be investigated. Xi Jinping broke up the general political department into a bunch of different components. And he said, we've got people who are like financial auditors, people who are anti-corruption people, people who are military court people, and they're all different from each other now. They don't work for each other. They're not part of the same bureaucracy. And so at least what you have are a few different control chains that come up independently to Xi Jinping's level. Um, and so, you know, he's trying to kind of come at it from that angle. Ultimately, though, it's a limited um, solution to the problem because these are all still PLA officers. These are all guys who came up through the same corrupt system. They're all former GPE people. And they don't work for each other anymore. But there's no outside supervision. There's no external control being put in there. 
And so it is a reform. It may make the system a bit better, but it doesn't solve the fundamental problem, which is that the PLA is in its own little box. And so you have problems that keep going on year after year. And I assume another dynamic is, um, you know, uh, going going to the second point, she has a very ambitious dream for the sort of military power that China is able to project, which has led to, you know, 10 percent annual increases in the budget. And all of a sudden, a whole lot more money sl- uh, sloshing around than there ever has been in the history of this organization. So the temptation um, is is probably there even more than there ever was in the in the Zhang and Hu era, just because there's so much more um, uh, um, you know, uh, cash uh, sloshing around, I imagine. There's a lot of money floating around. And in particular, I mean, the latest rumor is about the two guys from the rocket force who disappeared. And that's part of the PLA that's undergoing a big expansion right now. I mean, they're building silo fields, they're building, you know, new ICBMs, they're doing all sorts of construction there. And so, you know, the dominant rumor is that, you know, the entire leadership there was in on some kind of scheme, you know, kickbacks, whatever it was, we don't know, they haven't announced it, but that, you know, there's so much money going on in their strategic arsenal that that was, the temptation was too great and the supervision was too limited um, and something got out of control there. And Xi Jinping suddenly, you know, gets, gets, gets bored of it and starts to crack down again. Um, but the details, again, totally opaque right now. So there's a lot of different rumors, but it does seem to be about money. So, Joel, um, can we get a two-second sidebar on what the Rocket Force is? Not something that most countries currently have. So maybe worth yeah. uh, giving our, cluing our users in. Yeah, def- definitely. Uh, so it's a little bit of a misnomer because they're called the Rocket Force. But really, this is the ICBMs, the land-based ballistic missiles. Um, so they run most of the nuclear arsenal for the PLA. So the ICBMs, um, they do have nuclear submarines. That's part of the um, but in addition to the nuclear, they also do the long range um, conventional uh, missile forces. So you think about things, you know, you may have heard of like the anti-ship ballistic missile or the DF-26, the Guam killer. This is all part of the rocket forces arsenal. So it's not so much rockets as it is ballistic missiles and cruise missiles. So, so you know, this is the sort of like a really interesting internal contradiction here is on the one hand, look, this Something is wrong enough for she to want to fire these folks, but at least to, to outside observers, you've had some real, um, uh, uh, real technological successes uh, within the rocket force. You want to talk a little bit, uh, Joel, about you know uh, hypersonics and and sort of what that says about um, uh, the broader um, you know development capabilities that the rocket force presumably has overseen. So the big thing with hypersonics is it's not like a ballistic missile; it's a different trajectory. It's it's not the speed. It's that it's very hard to track them and potentially to intercept them. And so the reason why they're investing so much money in this is because they see this as critical to countering U.S. intervention in a regional conflict. They they still sort of understand that we are reliant on large bases in the Western Pacific. And so and they all they're also aware that we're building ballistic missile defenses, Um, you know, and so how are they going to try to deter us and if not that then disrupt or defeat us and it's through things like hypersonics that they think are a bit of an ace card um, a bit of a you know game-changing kind of technology um, and of course it's also the case the Chinese are just very very good uh, historically and today at missile forces and artillery and rocketry 
you know, goes back all the way to the 1950s. So they're much better at this stuff than they are at, you know, fighter aircraft or, you know, things like things, things like that, that they just haven't had a stronger industrial base. So they're good at it and it's operationally very significant for it. Hence a whole lot of money going into that part of the system. I guess my point was like, something has come out of that money and, you know, who knows how many missiles or, or just how good they are. But like, we've seen very impressive tests, um, which, you know, is, is at least a data, data point that like the rocket force isn't, isn't wasting and stealing everything that's going, uh, going through their coffers. Yeah. It's, it's not that this money is just going, going for not right. I mean, you know, there are tests, there are forces being fielded. I think, you know, the question for Xi Jinping is, well, you know, they haven't been honest with me about this spending. They haven't come clean. Um, you know, are they hiding something? Um, you know, so this gets to the level of trust, right? So you say you're being given, you know, billions and billions of dollars to build something. You show them in parades. You may have a test here and there. But if the balloon over goes up and you have this huge arsenal, is it reliable? Um, you know, is this stuff really going to work as intended? And it's, you know, not just a missile, it's the entire, you know, the satellites that have to provide the queuing and the people that are sitting at the, you know, the controls and everything else. So, Joel, how much less likely are you to start a very um, risky uh, joint, uh, you know, a war involving like very tricky joint operations if you can't really, if, if you don't have a ton of confidence in your generals? I mean, my view is that you probably don't want to go down that path. I mean, you know, he's, he seems to be confident just based on what they're doing right now in coercion, right? So sending planes, you know, slightly across the midline, sending a bunch of planes up into the areas and so on. I mean, that's that's all okay. They're able to do that. But, you know, if you're talking about the requirements of a war, you know, and so much is on the line for him and the party, you know, if you have questions like, is this stuff going to work? Are these people going to be, you know, are these people competent? Right. I mean, that's been one of his major complaints, too. Then I think it's it's, you know, something we don't give enough attention on our side um, is the level of, you know, we want to be able to tell the boss exactly what the outcome is going to be. But does the boss believe it when we tell him that? Um, and so that's, I think, a dynamic that is like almost irrespective of our own deterrent strategy. It's internal stuff. Um, are they reliable? Are they proficient? Um, are they telling me the truth? And if you can't say 100% confidence, yes, 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 then I think, you know, your incentive to go down that path to begin with um, starts to go very, very, very badly. You wrote recently that there's tremendous pressure on the PLA to demonstrate progress and prove that it deserves the government largesse. Do you think there's any, um, you know, where... We're at a moment where the sort of like macro, the Chinese macroeconomic health over the next few years is very unclear. Um, you think there's any um, a potential dynamic of Xi being so frustrated um, and fed up with 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 his current PLA that maybe he decides to um, uh, to starve the beast a little bit, um, given given sort of competing priorities and lack of a uh, and, and and the clear lack of trust that exists between him and and his military. Yeah, I mean, I would say probably I don't expect that he's going to cut cut the budget right for the PLA. I mean, he talks, you know, all the time about security. He seems to be rather paranoid. Um, you know, he seemed to be needing to be talked down back in 2020. He thought the U.S. was going to attack him. Right. I mean, for the October surprise. I mean, the idea is that, you know, I don't think and politically, you know, this is well, let's, let's stay, stay on that for a second. What's that story? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, the idea that, you know, back in the leadership of the PLA back in October 2020, you know, they seemed to be genuinely fearing that the U.S. was going to attack them um, as part of a so-called October surprise. And they needed to be reassured, right? I mean, this was the big story with General Mark Milley talking to his PLA counterpart and saying, you know, hey, wait, hold on a minute. So, but it speaks to the larger issue of paranoia. You know, he thinks the U.S. is out to get him. He thinks that we're doing color revolutions. And he talks, you know, about black swans, gray rhino. He's talking the language of security. And to make that case to the party and to say, you know, yeah, but we need to starve the beast. It's sort of, it doesn't match. Um, you know, plus the PLA is not an insignificant, in my view, political actor. I mean, you know, I think they need to have some level of um, autonomy and attention from the top. You can't just, you know, as one person say, I'm going to, you know, choke you to death, like, so to speak. I mean, he's going to keep giving them the funds um, and he's going to hope that they're going to use them in the right way. But I think he does feel the need to continue to, you know, to make examples out of people and to show that he's serious about these problems. Um, so, no. Uh, when she came into power, he fired a whole bunch of people. And then in the recent party Congress in October 2022, he stacked himself with loyalists. But now he's firing a lot of these people. Do we think that this move makes him more or less likely to be uh, influenced by a so-called echo chamber and to make rational decisions? So to me, you know, how do you, if you're China, how do you get into a war? And if you look at, you know, just like a pure cost benefit analysis, I think the costs are very high and the benefits are really not necessarily huge. But, you know, how else can you get into a war? You know, one possible reason would be an echo chamber, right? I mean, the PLA is in a case to you as the boss, you know, we're ready, right? So Xi Jinping, the PLA, a 2027 deadline, you know, you need to be ready by 2027 to go to war with Taiwan. And when that date comes, he's asking the PLA, so what's your update? You know, I gave you time. I gave you money. I gave you, you know, a whole lot of, you know, inspirational talk. And have you done it at this point? <laughs> and, you know, who's going to come to him and say, no, sorry, boss, we need another five years. I mean, and so this is maybe a, a, a concern is that the PLA lines up and says, you know what, you know, we're ready. You know, we think America is, you know, in decline. They're a paper tiger. You know, Taiwan is, you know, really having a lot of their own problems. You know, sure, we're ready. Um, maybe in their heart of hearts, they don't believe that. But does Xi Jinping come to trust that um, and make a decision based on, you know, sort of optimism, you know, a little bit like how Putin was a little bit misled by his generals into going into Ukraine. I think it's something worth worrying about. I don't know how likely it is, but, you know, that's, that's a different story of how you get into a war than just saying, you know, I've counted my missiles and I've counted their air defenses and mine are superior. That's a more clinical, you know, you know, um, cost benefit. This is more what do you believe uh, to be the outcome, regardless of how you're actually going to perform. And so I think that's worth yeah. worrying a little bit about with that echo chamber. We've done a, a great show with uh, Mike O'Hanlon just about how the counting up the missiles leaves you with such a giant error bar that it's like, you know, you're, you're not going to come out with any sort of high degree of confidence of what that scenario is, especially with all the, you know, enormous uncertainties when it comes to who's actually going to be fighting in the first place. So, Joel, it seems pretty difficult to sort of buy into that like echo chamber, um, you know, overconfidence, like dangerous cycle when she is out there f firing, um, you know, firing a uh, top leadership, right? 
Yeah, I think that's that's basically right. I mean, if you asked me the question a year ago or so, right after the party Congress, and the entire narrative was she has put yes men, they're not going to give him candid advice, they're going to tell him what they think he wants to hear. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I would have given you a firmer answer on the overconfidence bit back then. Yeah, today, now, given the shock of people disappearing and what that means in terms of his confidence, you know, if they tell them, sure, boss, yeah, we're ready to go. How much is he going to believe them? I'd say the chances are less, less than they were a year ago or less than they were two months ago, um, but not zero. And so I think that's maybe the reason it's boring and what it might be in five years from now when he's 75 and he's surrounded by people who giving him simple answers. Yeah, don't know if it's like a 1% chance or a 2% chance. To me, that's still worth worrying about because it's one or 2% chance times calamity. And so that's still a pretty huge expected problem or expected value, you know, in terms of uh, the rest of the world. Uh, people like Oriana Schuyler Mastro, in, in their assessment of things, the only thing which matters is Xi Jinping's perception, not counting all the missiles and things. If he perceives that um, an invasion is um, plausible or it could be successful, then that's the only thing that's really going to be driving him. Is that the right way to look at it? Well, it's part it's part of his you know calculus. I think does he think that operationally they will win? Um, you know, so will they? If they did an invasion, will they get a foothold? Will resistance crumble? You know, that's part of it. But then part of it is also could this be a pyrrhic victory for China? You know, let's say you get the immediate prize, but you suffer such huge economic and political damage to, and military damage to get there that it's just simply not worth the benefit. I think that would have to weigh as well. Um, you know, yes, perceptions matter in how he's thinking about the economic damage, um, how he's looking at sanctions and the potential. Does he conclude that, you know, we have inoculated ourselves against what the West did to Russia and by the way, most countries aren't going to sign on to that anyway, because we're more powerful than, you know, so does he think about that piece? Does he think about his political survival? You know, like, let's say that I roll the dice on this and it goes badly. Are there people that are going to pull their knives out and I'm going to be like Julius Caesar? I mean, does he think like that? Um, you know, so all of this gets to his mindset. And we have to ask the question because you know, he is the pivotal decision maker. But our confidence in the answers to those questions, I think, has to be really, really low because none of us know him. All we know is his pattern of behavior and the speeches that he gives to date, right? And so if you're making inferences on that, sure. But, you know, you can still be surprised by someone who is going to act in a totally different way from what you thought for reasons that you didn't know. So let's talk about the pattern of behavior thing, which is sort of one of the things that is making me a little less scared of World War III than other folks. So Putin invaded Ukraine in February 22. But he also invaded Ukraine in 2014. Uh, he invaded Georgia. He fought a whole giant proxy war in uh, Syria. Uh, also had some fun in Azerbaijan. Um, you know, this is a man who has a sort of long and demonstrated track record of like putting troops on, you know, uh, uh, rolling rolling tanks across across borders. Um, she, you know, has also been around for a while. And uh, you know, say what you want about the Scarborough Shoal and. Uh, you know, what happened would happen with India. But I think there's a, a real argument to be made that this is a sort of serious difference in, in kind. And, you know, to get to that level of overconfidence, um, you probably need to, like, win some small wars. 
um, in order, unless you're sort of really starting to lose it um, or, or, or some other exogenous shock is happening where there's maybe some internal um, you know, political struggle where you want to reassert control over the PLA by, by having a, a foreign adventure. Um, is that, is that okay? I mean, Hitler, the same thing too. You know, he like, he had a good time in Poland before he decided to do, um, uh, to do France. And then he had a good time in France before he decided to do Russia. I mean, the, 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 it feels like there's some sort of like, like, uh, Excel, like you got to kind of like work yourself up to the big one a little bit. I would hope at least. Well, yeah, I mean, that, I think that's the conventional wisdom is that she is not Putin. He has tried, it seems to me, pretty carefully over 10 years to stay below the threshold of lethal violence because I think he worries about the accumulating effects of sanctions. He worries about debacle that makes him look bad and so on. And besides, he wants regional stability for economic growth, which is according to his legitimizing story, you know. I'm going to deliver the goods to the people, but you can't exactly do that if you're at war with Vietnam or Japan or India. Um, you know, so that has been his track record. And I think that does give people confidence. Um, you know, but again, this is it's like in the realm of a black swan. You know, you are building the tool to invade. You are trying to inoculate your economy from sanctions. You are doing the things that you would do if you want to at least get, get yourself the option in the future of moving beyond that threshold. And so that's why people worry about because uh, he hasn't been that transparent about what exactly his intentions are. Um, you know, he talks the language of peaceful reunification, but what are the options to achieve it? Um, not much. Um, and so is there going to be a point in which his calculus shifts? Um, and then it could be an advantage not to have a bunch of small wars because people could say, we're genuinely shocked and surprised and paralyzed um, because we didn't see it coming. And it becomes the next great intelligence disaster for the West. And maybe they're, they're going to pull this off better than, you know, what Putin tried to do back in February last year, which was to, you know, cloud his intentions by means of an exercise. You know, so all of that is to say that there is an alternative. It's not necessarily a likely alternative, but I think it's one that is worth worrying about. And because it's possible, I think that's what is justifying, you know, the Taiwan's defense reforms, U.S. deterrence, et cetera. Yeah. So I, I just uh, finished reading Zubok's Collapse, the Fall of the Soviet Union, which sort of tells a very detailed story from like 85 to 93. And, you know, you got to this point where Gorbachev was like, all right, I am going to sign like the salt to end all salts um, and, you know, voluntarily withdraw forces from uh, from Eastern and Central Europe. And, uh, you know, there was this incredible moment where um you started having meetings between Western business people and like the leaders of the Soviet uh, military industrial base being like, uh, we want to stop making uh, missiles. And like the Soviet command economy only knows how to have us make um, uh, bicycles, like meet us somewhere in between, like teach us how to make, you know, microelectronics that are like useful for the rest of the world. And that is so many more degrees comforting than uh, someone who's talking uh, about 2027, 2035, and 2050. On that, like, Joel, how should people think of these dates? What, what is the right conceptual framework to, uh, to uh, apply to them? I think the right way to think is that the PLA needs to be told what to do um, because if they're not given dates and they're not given targets, then, you know, they're going to be spinning their wheels and complacent and, you know, distracted by their corrupt schemes. And so party leaders, starting from Jiang Zemin, had to tell them, you know, look, by 2010, you're going to do this. By 2020, you're going to do that. 
And they keep needing to revise the dates because of the passage of time. And so people have obsessed about this 2027 date, um, but the PLA needs it. It's their near-term readiness goal. I mean, 2020 was the last one. It came and went. And so they need a new target. You know, this is where you're going to focus your energy. Um, 2035, 49, these are like your midterm and long-term targets. So they need to be told what to do. But the misconstruing of this is that, you know, the CCP has some sort of political timeline to resolve the Taiwan question or else. And it has to be by 2027. But that's not how the PLA or Xi Jinping is talking about this at all. I mean, they're saying, get your act together. You're not anywhere close to being there yet. Um, Get there, modernize. I want to have options, you know, sometime this decade because I don't have an option right now. But it's not to say that I have a secret timeline and by 27, we're doing this and that's final. So I think that's a total misconstruing of the evidence and the history. So there's another way in which you can manifest sort of timelines if you're if you're running a military and you're thinking about budgets. There's basically like a little framework where there's three sort of levers where you can press. You can you can increase like for size, you can increase like your ability, you know, the, the, the sort of like material that you have available now and in the near future, or you can invest in R&D to, to make sure that 10 years from now, you know, your tech is going to be up and ready. Do you have a sense of like on those three sort of like curves of, of, of investment, you know, if there's any like peaking that are, um, uh, that are trying to go on where like, you know, if you're, if you're a, if you're an athlete, um, and you're sort of working around the Olympics, like, you know, you have your like load and deload sessions or whatever to make sure that you're like in tip top shape for, um, uh, um, you know, for the summer games. Yeah. I mean, so the way the PLA is dividing up their budget, so about five years or so the procurement, right. So the long-term R and D, it really did kind of peak. It was about 40% of the budget, which was, you know, in 200 plus billion, uh, it has started to come down. Um, and so it's come down maybe five percentage points or so. And the reason for that is because they've built this huge arsenal and you got to maintain that thing, right? So you're pumping out ships all the time, new planes and so on. Those things are starting to rust. Their engines are failing and so on. And so that near-term readiness account has been growing um, by, again, that's about 5% as well. And, you know, I just anticipate that pressure is just going to continue, uh, you know, because it's not trivial. It's not cheap at all to to maintain and to keep your forces trained up so they can use that stuff. Um, you know, the other piece you mentioned is about the size of the force. Um, yeah, Xi Jinping did cut the PLA when he came into office. It's two million now. But the personnel expenditures are about equal as a percentage of the budget to what they used to be. So in other words, he has less people, but he's paying them the the same share of the budget. So what that's showing you is that people are more and more expensive in China to hire and to keep in military service. Uh, so he's not just, you know, coercing people into, uh, you know, uniforms and so on. You know, he's having to pay them more. So that itself is putting some pressure um, on the budget that might not be going to long-term R&D as well. Um, so you do have this kind of tension between all, all of those things and they can't avoid them. It's going to keep going on. I recorded a show this summer with Paul Hong, and his take basically was any defense analyst who says that the PLA is going to launch an amphibious invasion, they don't know what they're talking about. It can't be done. That's impossible. And that aligns with the Office of Secretary of Defense 2021 report on 
uh, amphibious invasion, just describing, they don't say it's impossible, just say it's basically one of the most difficult military operations you could ever do. And in a recent publication you put out, you mentioned one option is what you call a joint firepower strike campaign, which is what Paul Hong talks about as well. Basically just fire a whole bunch of missiles and try to force Taiwan to um, acquiesce to the PRC's terms before um, a long war is brought about. Do you have a take there? Is an amphibious invasion just totally out of out of the picture? Or in what way would an incursion against Taiwan actually look like realistically? No, I don't think that an amphibious invasion is totally out of the picture. I mean, they're still training for it. They're trying to find ways to make up for some of the problems. Just for example, you know, they are bringing in, you know, civilian ferries into their training because they don't have enough ships to carry the troops and to carry the you know, equipment across the Taiwan Strait. And so they're experimenting right now. They're trying to figure out what does, it's not going to look like Normandy 1944. It's going to look like, you know, 2020s, 2030s, which would be a lot of missiles. It would be a lot of, you know, airborne troops coming across. It would be some people coming across in ships after you eliminated, you know, the critical anti-air and anti-ship threats. You know, so it's not out of the picture. I think they still have to think about it. And, you know, what Paul is talking about is, you know, just doing a massive missile bombardment and making the Taiwan leadership, if they survive, feel extremely vulnerable. And then they'll come to the negotiating table. Um, you know, so that's an option the PLA could do today. I mean, they have so many missile forces arrayed against Taiwan. They could just pull that lever right now if they wanted to. But then you have to ask, why haven't they done that so far? And I mean, the reasons I think, you know, number one, that doesn't guarantee victory, um, you know, unless you're going to send boots across the street and occupy territory, then you are leaving your adversary in place to some degree. So that's number one. And number two, you're going to pay some of the cost of a war to do that. Uh, so you're absolutely going to kill people by doing that. And once you cross that threshold, then you get into the sanctions. Uh, and so are you going to pay the cost of a war without getting a guaranteed victory of a war. Um, and so that doesn't seem like a great choice either. Um, you know, so they haven't done any of these things. And then the other thing, you know, you didn't ask about, but the, the other option there is the blockade scenario. And that's also something they could do it, um, or at least within a certain margin of risk, they could try to do it. But they haven't done that either, because like the missile bombardment, it doesn't guarantee anything. It's just putting a huge amount of pressure on somebody but it's not guaranteeing that, you know, the adversary is going to do what you want them to do. Yeah. And I think one of the one of the Ukraine lessons, right, is like this can backfire and you can get people way more mad at you than they were otherwise um, by by doing this sort of military adventurism. Yeah, that's right. I think, you know, people talk about a blockade because they say it's less escalatory. They say, oh, well, you're just using the Coast Guard and the Navy and you're stopping ships. But then what? Right. I mean, the other guy gets a vote. And so he can say, nope, we're going to run that blockade. Right. And so meaning the Taiwan, potentially the United States, potentially Japan. Um, yeah. And then what? Then what do you have to consider? Well, are you going to sink the, the blockade runners? Um, and at that point, then you're getting into a war. And that's very escalatory. Um, and so, you know, there are reasons why I think they haven't gone down those paths. They may seem attractive in, you know, on paper. But once you start dealing with bullets flying, missiles being shot and so on, then you don't know what the outcome is going to be, right? And if you're the CCP, you're, you're Xi Jinping, I want to know how this will end. Please tell me with 100% confidence. And they're like, you can never guarantee, you know, just like no one can guarantee. 
So I think those are some of the dynamics going on. Are there any more like operational level uh, lessons that you think uh, Beijing is starting to key into when it comes to Ukraine? I think the thing that maybe should get more attention is the idea of nuclear deterrence in the West. Um, yeah, I mean, and this kind of plays into our discussion of the rocket force and the purges and so on as well. Um, yeah, so I think what they're observing is, you know, Russia, you know, they're not getting away scot-free, right? I mean, they're sanctioned and there's no, there's arms flowing in and so on, but there's no boots on the ground and there's no like no fly zone. And how did they get this very nice, you know, situation for themselves? I think from Beijing's point of view, it's because of the nuclear deterrent. You know, Putin at the outset, he said, you know, things could go upwards very quickly here if you get involved in our core interests. And China is saying, you know, look, the West was easily deterred. Um, you say the word nuclear in a press conference, you fly a nuclear bomber around somewhere, presto changeo, you know, you get no foreign intervention. Uh, and so I think that's what they're thinking about there. Um, and so they are building this massive nuclear arsenal, bombers, ships, you know, you name it, they're going to build it. And they're saying this can be very useful. We may not actually have to fight the Americans, which is our not desired outcome here. We may be able to keep them at arm's length. And so I think that confidence that they can narrow the conflict to one just between them and Taiwan with no third party intervention. I think to them, that's an attractive outcome. Maybe even it's a little bit of a, you know, overly attractive, like they may be overly thinking that this is the same thing as you. Um, I think that's the major lesson. And I think it would be a wrong lesson because, you know, frankly, I think there's a higher chance that the U.S. would get involved in Taiwan than over Ukraine. But what the CCP convinced themselves that these are the same thing, I think that's maybe worth a little bit of work. Yeah. So speaking of like making that deterrence capability clear, um, you know, we, we've had Biden. Do you even want to call it slipping at this point? I'm starting to be a lot more explicit about America's commitment to Taiwan, um, as well as, you know, increasing the sort of like human tripwire. Um, by putting, uh, you know, more and more uh, American military trainers um, on the on the island. Uh, any thoughts about the sort of other levers that the Congress or the executive branch could um, uh, could pull in order to sort of uh, increase the sort of deterrent capacity, as well as what risks you'd potentially see on the horizon for that um, uh, degrading over time? Well, yeah, I mean, Taiwan needs to stockpile a whole lot more munitions than they have right now. I mean, he you talk about, you know, we sometimes go back to like the center of gravity, like what's really going to make a difference for the POA in terms of their confidence levels and the ability just to mow down anything trying to get across the Taiwan Strait. I mean, that's the center of gravity. But if you don't have enough, you know, anti-ship missiles, if you don't have enough stingers, if you don't have enough, you know, sea mines and the ability to deploy them quickly and so on, you know, that's going to erode deterrence, I think. And so, you know, they don't have enough of that stuff. They are either going to build it or they're going to purchase it from us or given it, you know, by us, perhaps. Um, but stockpiling is really important. And, you know, the other distinction with Ukraine, obviously, you know, it, it's, it's like a blinding flash of the obvious. But Taiwan is an island. Right. So we're not going to be sending in convoys in the middle of a war as easily as sending stuff across the, the border with Poland. Um, you know, so they're going to need a lot of stuff, whether it's, you know, munitions or whether it's, you know, just fuel and things like that to keep their um, their military running. Um, so they need a lot of help with that um, right now. And, um, you know, finding a way to get that aid to them while simultaneously supporting Ukraine. I mean, that's been the major conversation uh, right now. Uh, where is that stuff going to be coming from? How 
quickly can it be produced? By whom? Where? Um, so there's a lot of pieces to it. Um, but making the problem harder is really what's going on in Taiwan and their defense reforms right now. How committed are they uh, to, you know, to sharpening the sword that the PLA would be running into? And so that's a whole other set of questions. But I think that makes the whole thing more complicated. On deterrence front as well, are there more creative ways we can think about this problem as well? Um, for example, China's surrounded by 14 other countries. And uh, in a foreign affairs piece you wrote last year, you mentioned the possibility that India may seek to take advantage of some kind of Taiwan contingency to uh, reclaim whatever territory it thinks it lost in Western China. First of all, like, to what extent do you think that's a, a real deterrent effect in the PLA's mind? How much will that influence whether or not they engage in Taiwan? To what extent can those kinds of options factor into deterrence that Western nations think about? Yeah, so the Chinese talk about this as chain reaction warfare. And they're saying that if war breaks out in the main theater, somebody else is going to take advantage of that to kick China while it's down, right? And so that could be India, could be Japan, could be um, Vietnam. Um, and so they worry about that. And because they worry about it, they're distributing their military capabilities to all their different theaters. And so, you know, they think they need to have a very high level of readiness in the West, in the South, in the North, at the same time as you're going to war East. Um, so, you know, the question is, do they think that they've gotten to the point that they're going to deter adventurism by another country? Um, I don't know if they're there yet. I do think that that would be constraints on the ability. Let's say the war escalates and it gets protracted and you need to draw material from other parts of the country to the main theater. That's a limitation for them if you need to keep a lot of people, you know, against India, against Japan or Vietnam. It's a limitation. I don't know that it's central to deterrence. I think it's a complication for them um, because I do think that deterrence w wins or fails based on what they think they're going to face right across the Taiwan Strait. I mean, I think it's proper to focus on that. But saying that, you know, Army India, Army Vietnam or Japan, it complicates their problem. It reduces the amount of forces they can throw into a battle. And that's all right. And so keeping doing that, that's good. Um, but I don't think necessarily that's going to be the pivotal piece of the deterrence if you get into a crisis with Taiwan. Um, so one question I have, Joel, on the sort of like importance of Taiwan's uh, you know, the, the Taiwan military capabilities in the kind of dynamic of all of this. So, um, you know, we, we, we've talked earlier about uh, just how important sort of deterrence, uh, you know, the American commitment to Taiwan is as a deterrence. But like what uh, the Taiwan talks about, like we can we are able to like, you know, hold out for one month or two months or four months. Like how w w to what extent does that length of time matter? Um, from a broader, in a broader strategic sense. No, it, def it definitely matters because, you know, yes, you're going to have to hold out for some period of time if you're attacked because US, you know, U.S. military and maybe others are not right there. Um, so you have to have time to mobilize. If it's a large conflict, that can mean sending ships, sending things across the entire Pacific Ocean, which takes weeks. Um, you know, so you have to be able to, you know, hold out to some degree from China's point of view, you know, they're saying, well, you know, how quickly can we get this done? Um, you know, if you can present your adversary with a fait accompli, 
then it doesn't matter. You know, you're three weeks too late. Um, you know, so they are talking the language speed of very short duration, high intensity conflict. They want to get it all over and done with. But how confident are they that they can do that? And so if Taiwan can put up a fight, right, they can knock out some of the planes, some of the ships, you know, they can do something uh, to buy themselves time and they can broadcast their ability to do that. Then that's important for uh, for deterrence, I think. Uh, so, yeah, the time equation absolutely matters. Um, and then maybe the other piece of that is, well, what's the the regional? So, you know, U.S. has a lot of combat power in Japan, South Korea, potentially will be in the Philippines. Um, is that stuff going to be usable or not usable in a conflict? Because it's much closer than coming from San Diego or even Hawaii. Um, you know, so is China willing to, uh, you know, to strike those targets, bring those countries into the conflict, knowing that that's stuff you need to hit to protect your your operation? Um, so these are a lot of the dilemmas that people think. And, you know, you can make whatever assumption you want in a war game. I think that's you know, some of these some of these questions are why, you know, when you had Michael O'Hanlon, he's like, we don't really know because, yeah, you hit Japan or you don't hit Japan. That's going to make a big difference. But you have no idea if they're going to do that. Um, so so many different variables get into the equation. It makes it hard to. 30 years ago, like the, uh, China and Taiwan basically like set, spent the same amount on uh, on sort of military forces. But now you're up to like 10, 20, 30 to one, some like crazy, crazy ratio. How actually useful is the marginal are the marginal increases on the Taiwanese side in extending that you know well, one week to one month to to two months um, you know window for uh, the Taiwanese military to potentially resist a um, uh, an invasion? Well, it really depends on how they're spending it. I mean, yeah, they're spending. You know, I think the latest announcement was they're up to two point six percent of GDP or will be next year, and does it make any difference? You know, look if they're putting all that into stingers, and I think that's fantastic. If they're spending all of that on a you know fighter that's going to be obliterated on day one of the conflict, maybe not so much. I mean, and this was you know this is a big message when you had uh, Paul Huang on. He was sort of critiquing Taiwan for spending way too much on large, high value conventional forces because they're not useful in wartime. You know, yes, I agree with that, and that's been sort of a, a message to them for a long time. What they would argue is, that, you know, however, you need that stuff in order to beat back just regular peacetime coercion. I mean, you can't, you know, intercept fighter with, you know, like a drone. I mean, you know, you can't intercept a ship with, you know, like, like nothing. So you have to have destroyers, you have to have planes and they have to be functional, right? You can't just have old things that are breaking down all the time. You have to upgrade. Them. Um, but the question is, well, where's the right balance like between peacetime, just safeguarding your own sovereignty on one hand, and then buying the stuff you actually need to defeat them or to delay them in war. And are they finding the right balance? And I think a lot of people will still say they're unbalanced. You know, it's too much the large high value conventional stuff. And it's not enough of the low cost, actually, right? Because you know, things like like drones with ammunition on them, those are not that expensive. But they're just not buying enough of it and not building enough of it. And not enough of the budget is going towards it. Uh, so I think I still count myself as a bit of a skeptic on that front. I hear people in Taiwan and the U.S. say basically the same things. Just they're not buying enough um, asymmetrical capabilities or enough large numbers of cheap things, etc. Um, it seems like both people are aware of this, but yet Taiwan know, last week rolled out our first homegrown uh, submarine. Um, they like these these new projects. Do you have any sense on why we're not able to just send 
more munitions over to Taiwan like everyone seems to be in agreement on? Yeah, I mean, there is, there's different reasons. I think part of it is that the U.S. defense industrial base isn't producing very much of that stuff uh, anymore. Uh, and so the factories have been mothballed. The workers are not trained to build that stuff. And there's been no demand signal for it until very recently. Um, and so restarting you know, some of that is very important. Um, and obviously, the other constraint is that for some systems, um, you know, those have been prioritized to go into Ukraine right now. Um, you know, and so finding bureaucratic and industrial ways to ramp up production and shift it to where it's needed, um, that's all important. But I do think that for for right now, Taiwan needs to look at alternatives, right? If you're talking about, you know, 10 years from now, delivery of some small number of things, that's not good enough. I mean, you have to be able to produce cheaply and potentially from the private sector things like, you know, armed drones, which you can... I'm going to channel my colleague TX Hamas, who makes this piece all the time, you know, but things that you can 3D print, throw up in huge numbers, and that are basically one-time use things, that's not a, there's no huge problem why they can't do that. Um, you know, they can take a page out of, you know, our DOD just released this thing called Replicator about a month ago or so. It's this idea that you want to have a huge, huge number of drones, um, you know, to overwhelm your adversary by mass. And it's eminently doable. And Taiwan can have their mini version of that. Just throw up enough of, you know, armed drones that might cost $1,000 each. Throw that stuff at an invading fleet. Some of them are going to get knocked out, but many of them won't. And that's very helpful in the near term. So they need to think creatively and not get stuck in this bureaucratic mindset that the only thing that's going to save us is, you know, a billion-dollar submarine, because that's not the case. All right. So say you want to learn more about all this. Uh, uh, Joel, what should you put next on the, uh, you know, aspiring PLA watchers reading list? There is there's a lot of good stuff. I would say, you know, for people who want to get outside, I mean, there's DOD publications. Right. But if you want to get outside of that, um, the Japanese publish in English about their views on the PLA. Uh, the Taiwans have put their uh, defense strategy out in public. If you're looking at scholars, you know, writing about the PLA, there's a lot of good uh, good stuff being written lately. If you, you know, think of people like Oriana Mastro or Lonnie Henley or Fiona Cunningham has done great work on the nuclear forces. Isaac Carden, great work on the Ford Center military implications. There's a lot of good policy relevant research coming out in the, you know, the journals you can think of, right? International security or, you know, sometimes foreign affairs or in, you know, larger edited volumes. There's a lot of good stuff that's out on the table uh, to read and to critique right now based on based on open sources, right? So that's stuff from the PLA. That's maybe, you know, stuff that we get from satellite images. Maybe that's stuff from the webs. Uh, you know, whatever it is, there's a lot of good stuff that's being soaked up and processed right now uh, for the for the larger audience. What's the, what's the scene like? Like, how, how do you think PLA watchers are different from your, you know, your average uh, China, China analyst stripe? It's 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 a group of people who I think, you know, you have a lot of former military who are really excited about the nuts and bolts of military hardware, military organization. How are they like us? How are they different from us? So a lot of the, you know, the greats in the field have been people who were actually military attaches in China or intelligence collection people or whatnot. You know, you had a lot of those those guys, uh, you know, populating the field. Um but, you know, it takes a lot of, you know, you have to be excited to like watch a video of a military parade for like two hours and be like, that one thing is new. 
that's exciting and this is what it means. Um, so it takes a little bit of myopia, but also the ability to put things into a bigger picture. You know, well, that one thing is important because it's a game changer for their military strategy. And here's why. Um, yeah, so it's an exciting part of the field. It's a little bit of an underdog. I think a lot more people focus on the economy than the military, but it's growing. There's it's definitely a growth area given things that are going on right now uh, in the world. Gotcha. Well, looking forward to meeting more of your uh, your colleagues in the coming weeks and months as I get over my hesitancy and like, I guess, disinterest in like different artillery machines. Maybe maybe learning about semiconductors actually is what um, uh, red pilled me into like getting getting up into PLA um, uh, equipment equipment discussion. Uh, Joel Nicholas, thanks so much for being a part of chatting about. Thank you. Jordan.